a long time, the drugs and alcohol made me feel better、mm-hmm. and it made me feel whole. And then eventually, all those things started to create more and more problems in my life. No matter what I did, I would always wake up and I would be so depressed and I'd be so upset and so anxious. I, I just felt like it wasn't, it, it wasn't the right way to live. Like,、mm-hmm. I, I truly wasn't living, I was just going through the day blindly. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time. In a world of mental health, together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Before we continue, I would like to announce our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. I myself just started with BetterHelp.com. I'm excited to start with my new therapist. It's going to be very convenient for me because I travel a lot. I also have some time in the evenings that I can work, and most therapists do not see past 8 p.m. BetterHelp.com is an online platform. Over 4,000 therapists, and you can choose the one that is matching for you. It's affordable, it's accessible, it's convenient, it's secure. You can text them, you can chat with them, you can video call them, you can use your tablet, your computer, your phone. It's on the tip of your fingers. You don't have to travel anywhere. If you're remote and you're looking for a therapist, and maybe your community doesn't have someone local that is specific therapist for what you need, why not sign up? On betterhelp.com and get the therapist that fits your needs. It's also super private. You don't have to go anywhere and be seen in public if you're still struggling with stigma. So visit betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. They're offering our listeners 10% off on their first month. So go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Find your therapist. Hello and welcome to Hope to Recharge, the podcast that is designed to break the stigma and bring more awareness and love and acceptance to the mental health community, to those that are suffering or those that are living with ones that are suffering, how to give them support. How to give them love, how to understand what they're going through. Today, I have a very interesting guest, and I was very excited about this opportunity to speak to this person that I'm going to introduce in a minute. I feel like our vision in life is very much aligned in our goals, in our business, and our passion to break the stigma.、Um, today, I'm going to be speaking to Eli Brown. Eli Brown was a kid growing up in Canada, and An athlete, a huge tennis player. He got many awards and、uh, he was invited to different universities to be the major athlete as a tennis player. But something struck him in his teenage life the sexual assault that went on a spiral、um, journey of mental health issues and stigma fearing and led, leading him into drug abuse, alcohol. And he decided when he hit rock bottom to change things around. And thank you so much for joining me here, Eli. It's, it's such a beautiful story to see how somebody can really choose life. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me today to be able to share my story. Yeah. And、I've, Eli spoke in many places and many platforms about his story. He's a, a speaker now. He's an entrepreneur. He's, he's met, he wears many caps. And, and he's also at the same time a very humble guy. And when I was looking at one of his clips, and I realized at such a young age, he had to make the decision to change his life on his own, on his own. And how. The whole road to recovery and how he did it was really fascinating. And I was really inspired more. I, I think you're, you, you're one of the stories that really, really inspired me because you took it to the max. You didn't, you didn't become the victim, you became the hero. Yeah, thank you. So I want to give the listeners a little bit of a background of your youth in Canada.、Mm-hmm. And what kind of schools you went to, your family structure, your love, all that until you got to your episode of sexual assault when you were 14.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I grew up here in Toronto, Canada, in an absolutely loving house.、Um, two great parents, an older brother and a younger sister. 
have always and feel like I will always get along very well with both of them. Uh, very fortunate that I have all my grandparents alive and aunts and uncles and cousins. Uh, so a fairly large family around me and fairly large support system around me. So, you know, for me, that, that felt like very typical growing up and in a very happy and healthy home. I, I started playing tennis at the age of around three or four. Um, you know, just kind of testing out a bunch of different sports, but that was the one that I that I really grew passionate about. And I quickly started to play more and more as, as I grew up. And I went to a variety of schools um, at around the age of 12 uh, was when I really started to take kind of seriously. And with a lot of sports, um, there's a big time commitment to that. So I had to adjust the schooling that I was going to because I wasn't able to go to the typical 9 to 3.30 or 9 to 4 o'clock school. And had to go to different schools that uh, tailored towards athletes or actors or people in modeling or just people who really couldn't be at school uh, during the typical time period. So it was my at-home life was extremely typical, but my education was was not very typical. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, I went to a school called Interact at, at Vaughn Road Academy, where we would go to school from about 9.30 to 12.30. And then after that, we would be free to, you know, do the sports or anything that, that we were there for. And tennis really took me all, all around the world. And I started playing for Team Canada and, and traveling across the world for them, mostly in North America at that age, but every once in a while over to Europe. And that was kind of my, my life until I, uh, until I went to university and, you know, basically playing six, seven days a week and traveling and just focusing so much on tennis and getting a scholarship to, a, you know, a top American university. Uh, but at the age of 14, I did go through sexual abuse uh, by someone within the tennis community. Mm. And really not knowing how to reach out for support, I, I kept my struggles within. I, I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know who to speak to. Even though I had so many people around me that I could talk to, I didn't know how to formulate the sentence uh, to tell them what was going on. So I really kept my struggles within and mm. really just continued chugging along. And eventually I took a scholarship to the University of Michigan. And when I was there, uh, a lot of my life just started to fall apart. between the academic stress and the athletic stress, everything just really built up inside of me. And I started to notice things that were extremely uh, different in my life um, and something that I never really experienced before. I felt a strong desire to skip practices. I didn't have that strong of an interest in continuing to play tennis anymore. My sleeping habits changed. My eating habits changed. My interest on going out with friends and family changed. And I didn't really know that those were the first signs of, of depression. Mm. Just because I was so uneducated in mental health, I didn't know really how to describe it or, or how to reach out for help. And I also felt that if I did reach out for help, it, it was hard for me to really express how I was feeling internally. Mm -hmm. Because if I shared uh, with people how what the average day was like of a, a university athlete, um, it's exhausting. You know, waking up, mm -hmm. practicing before school, going to school, practicing, traveling, study hall. Like it was nonstop. So, of course, I would be tired. So, it was hard to separate typical symptoms of tiredness or of a student athlete versus what I was really feeling internally. And when did you have the courage to start seeking help? Did, you, did anybody around you notice that you're slowing down? Yeah, everyone around me did notice that I was slowing around. But no one, including myself, really saw it as a, as a big problem because I was going through such stressful days that it would be, it would be weird if I didn't feel all tired. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, were, we were working nonstop from 6.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. Right. I mean, it would be normal to feel tired. So it was hard to, you know, since I wasn't able to really come forward and say, hey, I don't think this is just me being tired. I, I really feel like something is wrong. I wasn't able to get the, the help that I needed at the time. Did you know that it had to do with your trauma? No, it's, I mean, I knew it, it that played a role in it, obviously, but that definitely wasn't the sole reason why I was struggling. I think it was a combination of everything. So you, did you have mental illness struggles before the episode? Ne never. Uh, I was always such a happy kid and I was always doing everything that I loved and always surrounded by great family and great friends that this was really the first time in my life that I really felt down. And for me, how I felt better was using drugs and alcohol. And eventually that became more of a problem than the mental health itself. 
right. uh, you know, I would feel down and I would try to maybe speak about it. I, nothing really felt better. But when I consumed drugs or alcohol, I did feel better. So that eventually became my coping mechanism in order to deal with how down I was feeling. Did you continue with your tennis playing? Were you, or they kicked you out because you were abusive with drugs and alcohol and you couldn't compete? No. So I, I, I did play for a little bit longer. So I finished my year at University of Michigan and, and continued playing for them while I was at school. Mm-hmm. That summer after my first year, I decided to leave and go to a school closer to home mm-hmm. because that summer I started to see some doctors and some psychiatrists mm-hmm. on what was going on and how I can change my life. And when I went to that school that was closer to home, I did play on the tennis team there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a Canadian school, so the athletics are extremely different. The season's about six weeks long or maybe eight weeks max, and that Mm -hmm. was really it. And we're practicing twice a week versus in the U.S., we're practicing five, six times a week and Mm -hmm. all day, every day. Uh, So I still did play for about a year and a half when I went to that second school that was closer to home. So what was the rock bottom that you reached that you said, I'm, I'm ready to get help. I'm ready to find out what is wrong instead of continuing with the drugs and alcohol. What made you stop and say, I need help? A long time, the drugs and alcohol made me feel better mm-hmm. and it made me feel whole. And then eventually all those things started to create more and more problems in my life. No matter what I did, I would always wake up and I would be so depressed and I'd be so upset and so anxious. I, I just felt like it, was, it wasn't the right way to live. Like mm-hmm. I, I truly wasn't living. I was just going through the day blindly. And eventually I did reach out for help because I just saw what my life was becoming versus mm-hmm. what it was before and the trajectory that I was on when I, when I took a scholarship position at, at Michigan. And I just said, I, like, something just has to change. I can't continue on like this. Now, it did take me a while to actually come to terms with that and right. reach out for help and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to go somewhere and change my life. Right. But once I did, it was the best thing for me. Right. Any of your friends go through the same thing that you went through? Could it be pressure from a society pressures or just the competition pressure or hard work, lack of sleep, all that? Can that also be a trigger in, in anxiety? Definitely. I, and I have seen other people go through it as well. And I think uh, mental health and substance abuse with all athletes is something that's that's pretty prevalent. So it's not unique to me. This is something that I, you know, I've definitely seen. But at the time, I, I wasn't really seeing too many friends or you know teammates going through similar things. And you know, probably a lot of it was just that no one was really talking about it, or no one was really reaching out for help. Did you ever know anyone that suffered with mental health? Did you know that that concept existed? I didn't know anyone personally, I'm sure. I mean, everyone does know someone. Right. Um, it's just I wasn't, it was something that I didn't really talk about. It's something that never really came up. Right. It's something that I was so uneducated in that I never really came to my mind. So you were afraid of the unknown. You were afraid that suddenly you're going to be called crazy or you're going to label yourself crazy and maybe there's no return. Yeah, and also it's it's something that we don't really learn about. Like it's not like some you know it's not like a math subject that we learn about in school or science. Right. So it's it was kind of I mean luckily now all that stuff is talked about in the school system. At the time, it's you know we're so uneducated about it that when we feel these different things, we don't know what it's about, mm-hmm. and we don't know if it's normal or not normal to feel those ways. So the rock bottom was that the suicide attempt that you had, or was yeah. it before? Yeah, it was a combination of a lot of things. It was it was a suicide attempt. It was feeling like I just can't continue. It was how doing small tasks like showering or doing my laundry or making my bed felt like these mon- monumental tasks that I had mm-hmm. to do. Right. And before, like I wouldn't even think about doing that stuff. It was just second nature. So really, all of those things combined eventually for me it was. Okay, I need to go get help. I used to be such a happy kid. I used to be such a productive person. And I used mm-hmm. to just love everything that I did. And now when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm unhappy and I don't know what to do. Right. So that, you know, combination of those things really encouraged me to, to seek help. What was the reaction from your family and loved ones or your friends when you said, I'm going to therapy, I'm going to, something's wrong with me, I need help? It was a tremendous amount of support. And they all knew that something was going on in my life and that I needed to, to get help. And they were so happy that I finally recognized it because I think mm-hmm. family and friends realize it a lot quicker than the person who's actually going through it. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, looking through third party eyes. It's, mm-hmm. 
generally they see it first. So everyone was so happy and so supportive of me going and doing something to change my life. How old were you at the time? I was 19 turning 20. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like... Very young, very young. Pretty young, yes. Did your parents ever mention to you, is something wrong? Do you want to seek help? Why are you taking drugs? What's with the alcohol? Was there ever like a conversation about it? Yeah, tons of times. And I think what I've learned along my journey is that the change can only happen when the person's truly ready to. Because mm-hmm. there was about a year and a half, two year period where people would come up to me or friends and family and say, hey, Eli, you need to get some help. We know you're not doing well. And I would just kind of shun it away. I wasn't ready to change or I didn't even think that there was a problem. It took me about a year and a half, two years to actually truly believe that there was a problem and that I needed to change my life. Well, I feel like sometimes it's so hard to go into that darkness and reveal it because we don't know how we're going to cope with it. We know that we're struggling right now. We know that the darkness is so dark. And sometimes when we reveal what's causing can be even darker. So we need so much strength and to open those wounds is very, very hard. And it's not that we're in denial. We just can't face any more pain. Yeah. And it just takes time to sometimes realize that there is something going on and that there needs to be a change made. What was you, what do you think was the biggest aha moment for you in recovery? Like, was it a therapist? Was it AA meetings? Was it giving back? Was it just you coming, accepting your wounds and forgiving yourself for going through whatever you went through when you were 14? Yeah, it was, it was a combination of so many different things. I think the big aha moment for me was really realizing that I wanted to change because I wanted to change. I believe that you know the person going through recovery has mm-hmm. to truly want to be there to really go through it and do, and do it properly. Um, but along the journeys, there's tons of other things that I learned. I mean, to, to forgive myself that it wasn't my fault of everything that I went through, that just because I went through a couple of years of pain doesn't mean that the rest of my life has to be that way. Like I can make a change. And also just finding my path. And I think that's something that a lot of young people struggle with. And it was mm. something that I really struggled with was, what am I going to do when I'm, when I'm older? <laughs> you know, what am I going to create? And how am I going to be productive and do it with something that I'm happy doing? And once I did find my path, I found that happiness was, was there to follow. Tennis wasn't one of your things that you wanted to do to be like known for. You could be a huge athlete. That's huge. If you're doing it since you're a little kid, that could be something that you hold on to as a passion. Yeah. And it's still something that I do now. I think last week I played, but you know, for me, I, I came to the realization that that wasn't the way that I wanted to have an impact on the world. Mm. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm still passionate about it. I still love watching it and I still love playing it. It just mm-hmm. wasn't the way that I wanted to contribute to the world. Do you feel that what happened to you when you were 14 changed your vision on what you want to give to the world? And if if you would have the standard upbringing with no trauma, no abuse, would that change the way you are today? Or or would it be, would you be deep enough to know that even without a trauma, you want a, something bigger? Yeah, it's tough because, you know, it's playing like the what if game. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard to you know go back and say oh if this didn't happen mm-hmm. then maybe I would still be playing or you know who knows mm-hmm. I I like to believe that regardless of what happened I would have come to this uh, I think that me coming to this at such an early age is because of everything that I went through mm-hmm. but I do believe that and this is my calling and this is my path and this is how I want to have an impact on the world and the community around me mm-hmm. I want to talk about those years from the moment that you had that incident till the pain really started. So it starts with denial, right? Is it denial or is it it's is it self-shaming? What what is that first process that you went through right after the incident? I think a lot of it was was just almost like a what happened type thing. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean I was so young. Right. Um, and it's such a tough thing to to comprehend mm-hmm. that it did take me years to really sink into it and actually digest everything that happened and how wrong it was because at such a young age we don't really know what what's going on and that was something that i mean i'm sure you're familiar with the me too movement mm-hmm. and one thing that i really saw there was you would see adults who went through something very similar mm-hmm. who are mature adults 
who took years and years to come forwards because it is such a tough thing to digest and to to really think about and and to take apart. But I think the first part of that was kind of just trying to figure out what happened and a lot of self blame. Really, you know, what was what was my role in it? What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And as I kind of went along my recovery journey, just really realizing that it wasn't anything that I did. And that was a big, that was a big change for me in my life. Just realizing that it's not my fault. Were you embarrassed to tell your parents? Were you afraid of the consequences? It, it wasn't even, I mean, some of it was probably being embarrassed or, or feeling shame. Um, but so much of it was just, I didn't even know how to have the conversation. Like it's, it's a tough, tough yeah. thing to say. I mean, I, like if it happened to, to me now, like it's a tough conversation to formulate the sentence to actually share it out loud. Wow. It's not, it's not easy. So especially going through that at uh, such a young age, it's, um, it almost felt nearly impossible to come forwards and say anything. Mm-hmm. And even going with the, with the depression and the anxiety and the substance abuse, like, even that is tough to, to discuss. Yeah, very because there's a lot of consequences as you start to share. Especially as an athlete, I find that um, doctors have their fear of sharing and athletes also because it it has a stigma of weakness. Yeah, and also uh, it's it's so difficult because you almost then label yourself as different, even though almost everyone goes through something. Mm-hmm. Uh, by coming forward, you do label, your, label yourself in a different way. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those tough things to just be able to, to share and not feel like you're going to be judged or alienated from your friends and family or your community around you. Right. Did you ever go on medication for depression? Yeah. So after my first year of university, I, I went on medication for about a year and a half, two years. And it was a bunch of trial and error. I, I, I found it very difficult being on medication. I felt like it really did have a negative impact on my life. I didn't yeah. feel like it really did work. I haven't taken anything for the past five and a half years ever since I got sober. So I'm sure there's been a lot of developments, mm-hmm. um, but at the time it wasn't where it's where it's oh I'm feeling X okay so take Y mm-hmm. it was very much okay take X or I'm feeling this way and here are the top ten medications that you could take mm-hmm. there's no recommended you know there is a recommended dose but it's not down to a science yet of oh you're feeling depressed take this and you'll feel better mm-hmm. so it was a lot of trial and error. At the time, I was also still consuming a lot of drugs and alcohol, so I probably mm-hmm. wasn't giving myself the best chance of yeah. success. I'm mixing all of that stuff and still partying and not sleeping and not taking care of my body. But I did find that once I got sober and once I was able to address the issues within me, I, I no longer felt the need to medicate. How did you get sober? Uh, so that I, I initially went to a treatment program in uh, Nevada and Utah. It was kind of a combination of both places. And then to a place in Boulder, Colorado. And it was, I mean, there are so many things how I got sober. I mean, first just coming forwards and being able to share my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, being in a group of, of dozens and dozens of men who had a similar story as well. Mm-hmm. And just realizing that I wasn't alone and building a, a deeper support system around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, realizing that it wasn't my fault of everything that I went through, that mm-hmm. these things can happen and do happen. Mm-hmm. And really just starting to dissect different parts of my life of where I felt things went wrong, where others felt things went wrong, and really dig into the, the roots of those emotions and, and come to terms with everything that, that I went through. How long was that period of recovery? So the the intense part of the recovery was about six and a half months, mm-hmm. but it, it, it never never stops. Like I still go to AA meetings now. You still, yeah, still go. Um, so it's not something where I, you know, you you go to a place and you work on it for six months, then you come back and you're perfectly fine. Even when I came back, I was still going to therapy once every two weeks. I'm still mm-hmm. going to AA meetings three, four times a week. Now I only go probably once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because as you go along the recovery journey, maybe you need less of something or more of another thing. So it's something I'm always still going through and always still working on. And as I go through life, different things spark different emotions. It's mm-hmm. just now I have the support system around me that when I am feeling down um, or anxious or stressed or whatever it is, because these are all normal emotions that people feel on a daily basis, mm-hmm. that I'm able to reach out to my support system and really uh, tackle those issues before they become larger issues. Is your support system like a therapist, 
or a mentor or your family members, or is it a group setting that you created for yourself? A, a little bit of everything. I, I still go see a therapist. I still have a mentor, my family, my friends, a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it really depends on what I'm going through. So for example, if I'm feeling down and I want to drink or use drugs, mm -hmm. I would reach out to my support system within AA. And really speak to them about it because those are people who are going through it and who have gone through it. So those are the people I'd go through for that. Um, maybe if I'm feeling stressed or down about work, I'll speak to my mentor. Mm -hmm. um, if it's about relationships, maybe to my family, friends, or mm -hmm. girlfriend. It's not so much of, oh, I'm feeling down. I'm going to just speak to this one person. Depending on the problem, right. how I'm feeling will determine who, who I go to. But I have someone at every level to speak to. I think that's remarkable that you set yourself up to no failure. You set yourself up with people around you, surrounding you, that you know that it can be a relapse. You know that you're not strong enough to live forever without having moments. And you're, you're not saying, oh, I'm done. I'm, it's over. You made sure that you have everything around you to not fail, which okay. I think is strength. Yeah, and I think that's something really important that, you know, whether you're young or old or, you know, whatever it is that you should be doing because everyone does fail. I mean, mm -hmm. people fail multiple times in a day mm -hmm. um, and it's not letting those things take you to your down because that's normal to fail and using every failure as a way to learn and to motivate yourself to continue to push forwards and accomplish new things. Yeah, it's amazing that you don't have the fear of um, failure because for someone that went through what you went through, you could feel like a failure because so many things, you, you let people down in your life and your relationships and in your own self, you might have felt like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. But no, you choose, choose to see the growth out of it. And I think that's such an important message for anybody that's struggling, that, that we all have failures. Like if there's one thing you're going to get out of this episode, we all, and I love how you say we fail multiple times a day. If it's in a conversation, if it's in a relationship, if it's in work, if it's in uh, in in an interaction in the store, we yeah, can I mean, it fail. It happens all the time, right? Yeah, and one of the things my mentor told me is that our greatest challenges in life can become our greatest successes, mm -hmm. and that's something that really stuck with me because I feel like we all learn so much more from our failures failures than we do from our successes. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first went into the treatment program, my parents, uh, everyone has their parents or someone, a guardian in their life, write them a letter. Mm -hmm. And in my dad's letter to me, he, he reminded me of, of when I was playing tennis. And that when I won a match, I would just kind of get into the car and just go on. And, oh, I won. And that's it. But when I lost, I would dissect why I lost and what I can do to improve in the future. Mm. And when I took that mindset and, and moved it into recovery, and now what I do on a daily basis, I find that I learn way more from failures, failures and losses than I do from my successes. Mm. And how, but in know, order to improve. Exactly. Not to bring um, yourself down, to rise yourself above. Exactly. And you know, for example, like when I was starting uh, Shine the Light On, Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the clothing industry, but mm -hmm. I went to a couple hundred stores with my samples. I, sh I sh shared with them my story and why I was doing this and the mm -hmm. products that we had. Right. And out of those 300 stores, only seven said yes. So I, I want to wait. I want to give the, the audience doesn't know what you're talking about. Oh. So I, <laughs> I want to give yeah. a little bit of a background. So Eli decided after recovery, he wants to make a change, a big change yep. in the world of bringing the conversation out about mental health awareness, breaking the stigma, suicide prevention, all this stuff. And so young and so courageous, he started a clothing line by the name of Shine the Light On. And it's a t-shirt company. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a t-shirt mm -hmm. company that has all kinds of inspirational and motivational sayings for those that are battling mental health or to inspire others to break the stigma or to be in the now, even if the now is not okay. It's okay to not be okay. I know that that's one of your slogans mm -hmm. and I love it because I use it all the time. It's okay to not be okay. If we only gave us the permission to not be okay, it would be 
the beginning of our recovery because we're so afraid of the not being okay. So we hide, we hide away from it. We pretend that it's not there, but it's really there. And it's steaming up until it explodes and until there's an episode. Mm-hmm. So Eli started this company. And as he was telling us a few minutes ago that he went and he, when he first started, you're so young. How old were you when you started the company? I was about 21, 22 mm-hmm. when I that, started it. Wow. Oh, yeah, 20, yeah, 22. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I knew nothing about the clothing world, but I just wanted to create something that would give back to the mental health community. So mm-hmm. thought of using the thought-provoking designs to spark conversation and to build community and have the proceeds go back to mental health initiatives around the world. I love and that. Yeah, so it's been quite an exciting journey. And now we're sold in, I think, a little over a thousand locations across North America. Wow. And but like when I started, I took my samples and I went to 300 stores and only seven said yes. Seven said seven yes. is a lot. Seven. Uh, yeah. But out of 300, that's, you know, 293 failures. So, you know, that was one of the things where, you know, I was trying to touch on before was mm-hmm. if all 300 said yes, I wouldn't have made any changes. Oh, my uh, God. It's so true. But with, you know, the 293 no's, you know, I'm going in and they, mm. I share this and they're saying, oh, well, you only have black, white, and gray. Maybe you should add some color into it. Or maybe your sizing is off or your styles are off or your designs are off, or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And mm-hmm. after each, no, I'm trying, you know, adapting what I need to do in order to succeed and taking what I learned in recovery of, of using failures or disappointments as a way to, to learn and to come back is, you know, something that I do every single day and something that everyone I, I feel like could do every single day. That is incredible. I love that story of the 307 saying, yes, a mentor of mine said, if you would succeed right away, the jump to the next six, like the next high will be so much higher. Mm-hmm. So it's like getting high and then you want to get high again, but you've got high so fast, so quickly, it's going to be hot, hard to get to the next highs. The jump is going to be so much bigger that you're going to need yeah. to make versus you're trying, you're trying. So the small little yes, yay, celebration. Oh, great, mm-hmm. great. I, I'm not a failure. I could do this. And then a few more no's and then improving. And, and that's such a lesson for life mm-hmm. because not, nothing comes easy. And if it comes easy, there's a reason why it came easy, right? There's a reason why. I love that you took the lessons from recovery and you put it into any aspect of your life. And one of them is the business, Mm -hmm. which is brilliant. And at such a young age, you must have had really good mentors. Yeah, very good. Very good. Extremely lucky, yeah. Yeah. And probably your parents are incredible human yeah, beings. Extremely. Yeah. yeah. And they've always been super supportive and I definitely haven't made it easy on them. They're yeah. always there for me, which has been making my life a lot easier. Yeah. What made you choose t-shirts? So I, I wanted to choose clothing um, one, because I wanted to really, ex- I, I felt alone for so many years and I wanted people to feel part of a community. So I thought if I created something that people could wear and mm. walk around on the streets or pass by a store and see it, that if someone was struggling and they saw that, it was just a quick reminder that they're mm. not alone. You don't have to say anything. You don't have exactly. to know what they're going through. It's a visual reminder right away. Exactly. Like you pass by a store in a mall and you see the product there. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think that the person who's struggling is going to go into the store and spark up a conversation. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But that person will know that there's other people out there who are struggling and that they're not alone in their journey, mm-hmm. and that there is a community of people. As we've grown, we, we now share the stories of different people impacted by mental health. So we're trying to create a community within our community mm-hmm. where people are able to share their stories in a safe environment and really tap into a group of people who are there for them. And how was the response when you said it's about mental health awareness? Did they say, oh, no one's going to wear it. People are going to be ashamed. Who's our clientele? What was the response from the, from the higher business power stores? So I, what was interesting was when I first started, um, I made it so much about the mental health. So the, the shirt itself said, shine the light on mental health. And it, it almost reminded everyone of a charity t-shirt. So maybe a couple of people bought them, but no one ever really wanted to wear it because they just mm-hmm. became a billboard. Mm-hmm. So then we kind of, you know, rejigged a couple of things and said, okay, how do we get our mental health messaging across mm-hmm. in a way that people want to buy the products? Because if people aren't buying the products, our message isn't going to get across, but still relay that message. So what we decided to do was listen to people's stories, 
and take certain lines and phrases from their stories and turn them into designs. So for example, we have a shirt that says rather be in bed. And it's one of our best selling items. Yeah, I saw that. And it's on yeah, your homepage. Yeah. And it comes from a girl sharing her story who was struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. And that's how she described her journey. No matter what was around her, or whatever she was doing in life, she always just wanted to be in bed and isolate and not speak to anyone. Was she an was she like an athlete or a uh, big no, just, person in the world? No, in, uh, no just a uh, just a regular like person. us, like exactly. us. Yeah, yeah. And that's how she described it. So mm -hmm. we put that on a shirt as a way, and we convey that on their hang tag of where that design came from, because that's a that's a shirt that people will buy. That if you're wearing it, it doesn't scream charity campaign. Everyone loves it because it's their way to give back, and they know the meaning behind it. And when someone asks them, oh, why are you wearing the Rather Be In Bed shirt? They're able to now have that conversation. Do you think that everybody buys it, knows that there's a story behind it, a mental health story? I don't think everyone. I think the majority of people, just because if you see our stuff in, in a store or online, it, it has it all over the place. On the hang tag, it has the story. And Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So it has my story on it of why I started. It has the story of the design. It has where the money's going. In the stores, we have displays where it shows everything about the company and why we're doing it and where the money goes. So I think the majority of people do, uh, but there is a chance someone just goes into a store and sees a comfy sweater that says rather be in bed and they buy it and maybe they never know. But, How many yeah, I mean, styles do you have? Uh, right now we have about 11. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's, it's, I mean, there's definitely a fashion component to it. Right. Um, but I wouldn't say we're a fashion company. We're, we're the authors of a story and, and we're sharing other people's stories. The clothing is simply just a way for us to connect the listener to the story. Who's working with you on this project, on this big business? Quite a few people. So you have a designer probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. We got designers, stylists, you know, photographers to do all of it, e-commerce, digital marketing people, so much. people. Yeah. Quite a few people. And everyone who, who works with us has been impacted by mental health. And oh, really? Yeah. So I think it's something important oh. that whether it's their, if they've personally been impacted or they know a friend or a family member who has, I think all that stuff is super important because then they understand how serious it is to, you know, to consistently do a good job and share the message forwards. Wow. What's it like to be such a young CEO and be so in charge of so many people and a big hat to wear? Yeah, it's pretty fun. I, I enjoy it. Is it stressful? Yeah, very stressful. Very stressful. Yeah, but it's nice. You know, I'm happy that it's, you know, it's really starting to chug along now and really expand. And as we're going into the U.S. with, you know, in the different U.S. markets, it's been interesting because I think the Canadian conversation around mental health has really exploded and people talk about it everywhere. Much um, more than the U.S. Exactly. Much so more in schools and workplaces. Why, why is that? Um, when we have a smaller population, so I think it's easier to get a message across. Mm -hmm. um, and also, we're fortunate enough that that um, there's a big um, telecommute telecommunications provider here in Canada. So we basically have three of them in all of Canada, mm -hmm. and one of them decided to tackle mental mental illness, oh. and they created such a large campaign around it that everyone's talking about it. Um, so it'd be almost uh, similar to um, like AT and T, for example, right. in the U.S. Right. doing a nationwide campaign on all TVs, billboards, radio, oh. celebrities getting involved, very right. similar to like how the Me Too movement went across. Right, right. What and was their why? Pardon? What was their why behind doing this mental health awareness? Because they saw an issue in the community and they wanted to change it. Mm. So it's not it's because been, a personal issue with one of the... Most seats. likely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's probably, I mean, the thing in this stat is one in three people are impacted and, mm -hmm. you know, a company like that's got tens of thousands of employees. So, mm -hmm. the, you know, everyone's been impacted by it or a lot right. of people have been impacted by it. Um, but they've been doing that campaign now for about five, six years here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So the conversation is very far ahead and, and we're trying to get that into the US and, you know, hopefully one day it is there. No, it's it's so crucial. I was telling you before that I was um, asked to speak at a suicide prevention event at by in a local school, and I think that there's there's a little bit of a gray line between substance abuse, overdosing, and mental health suicide. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they intertwine, and sometimes they're they're not even related. So. 
as a somebody that wants to, you're very into mental health awareness and breaking the stigma, how do you make the difference to teenagers, to raw minds that, that the conversation is not about the sus- substance of use, it's about feelings and speaking about it? And, and how do we not make it a big mountain that uh, sometimes in the Me Too, everybody suddenly came out with a Me Too. And sometimes you have to be aware that you're giving them an opportunity to be a victim when sometimes they're not a victim or whatever. So how do we do that? How do we, first of all, make a separation between substance abuse for substance abuse, not for mental health? And how do we tackle mental health and give them the permission to speak and speak and and be vulnerable about it without without making a mountain out of it. And it's that's such a tough question because I don't think there really is a right answer to it. Mm. Um, for example, like the substance abuse and mental health, like it is very closely related. A lot of people who do struggle with mental illness mm-hmm. also struggle with substance abuse, mm-hmm. um, and it's very difficult to separate those things. Um, and from my personal story, the way I was able to separate it was the substance abuse was a reaction I had towards feeling down. Mm-hmm. If I was, you know, if I felt uh, depressed or anxious or super stressed, I would use substances in order to feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, that's how I separated it was I said, okay, I'm feeling on one hand, I'm feeling this way. And on the other hand, this is how I'm reacting to it. So I need to change my reaction, which is going from using substances to actually dealing with the feelings that I, that I do have. Um, and I think that, you know, these journeys aren't easy to go along and they, they do feel like mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to, to do it in a way that we're not asking anyone or advising anyone to climb a mountain in a day. It's just taking a couple steps every single day. And then mm-hmm. you'll be surprised how quickly you're able to get through a difficult time. What do you think will be like three tips you would give a teenager that's not sure if they're going through mental health or they just society is stressful? How do they bring up the conversation? I'm hurting, I'm in pain. What should they do to diagnose if if it's mental health, to bring up the conversation and to get help? Like what, what is it for a teenage mind that's so raw and young and vulnerable? Yeah, I, th- I think the first thing that I would recommend is to give yourself permission to share how you're feeling. I think that at least for myself, I felt like I couldn't come forward and share how I was feeling. And once I gave myself permission to actually talk to people and let them know how I was mm-hmm. feeling, I was able to actually get help. So I think that would kind of be the first thing that I suggest is really just talk to someone about it, realize that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And then from there, the next thing that I did was start to really build a support system around me that when I was feeling down or depressed or anxious, I was able to reach out to these people to to talk about it and to really get the help that I was needed. Mm -hmm. I, I think those things can really make a a drastic impact on someone's life. Right. And they'll probably realize how much support they get out there. Instead of the fear of shame, the amount of support and love is unbelievable. And usually people will say, oh yeah, I also suffered or my friend, my, my partner, my friend, my sister, my brother, there's some, it's not something that they didn't hear of. Mm -hmm. And that will be their big aha. Oh my God, I'm not alone in this. And that feeling of not alone is so monumental in the recovery. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. a slogan, to get, in mental health together is better. That loneliness is not so, even though when we're so dark, when we're so bleak, it doesn't really help to hear that I also suffer from depression. Like it's re- the dark can be so dark, you don't even care what's happening mm-hmm. in, in disastrous countries, right? You don't really care. But when we have a little bit of a up, we can, that's when we can say, okay, we're not alone. We could do this together. This is not something that's only me. Exactly. I, I'm not going to be alienated. I'm not going to be um, ostracized. I'm going to still have friends. And also it's important, I talk about this a lot, of realizing who your support is and who is not, who to mm-hmm. disconnect from. Did you have that in your recovery? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think that there were people who were unsupportive of me. I just think mm-hmm. that there were people who are more supportive of me. Right. And those were the people that I chose to be with. Right. Versus, versus uh, some people that don't get it. And they'll say, oh, it's all in your mind. Get over it. Those are people that are toxic. 
Yeah. And I mean, I do find that I was fortunate where I didn't have anyone who was not supportive of me making a change to my life. Mm -hmm. There were just some people that were extremely supportive of me. Uh, So those were the people that I chose to surround myself with. Mm -hmm. Do you still have very black days with a cloud on your head? Yeah. Yeah, it happens. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I have the 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 team around me and I have the tools within me now to be able to work through those things. So a dark time doesn't become a, a, a dark month or a dark year. So what would you tell somebody that wants to give up and say, I can't do this pain anymore? What is something they can ask themselves that will make them matter to continue the fight? Uh, for I mean, I can really just speak with kind of what I what I did to myself. And it was really just looking myself in the mirror. And I felt so down and so dark. And I didn't want to continue. And I looked at what I and I thought of what my life used to be. And that's what I wanted again. And I wanted to be that happy kid and that healthy kid. Uh, so I just started reaching out to one or two people. And I just started extremely slowly starting to get more and more help until I was ready to actually make a big change in my life. And it could have been something as, as simple as, oh, I haven't done my laundry in, in a month. Uh, you know, can, can you at least just help me start to get that back in normal? Mm-hmm. And it was that. And then it was the, oh, I, you know, I need to you know, do grocery shopping more often. I've really slacked with that. Can you, Mm -hmm. can you make me accountable to go once a week or once every Mm -hmm. two weeks to go do that? And those steps, and it it was doing all of those little things over Mm -hmm. and over and over again, that ended up resulting in the big things happening. Right. And I always say, celebrate the wins. When you take that shower after a week of not showering, celebrate it because taking that shower was a fight. It was a huge fight in our mind, in our body, in our energy. So don't underestimate the celebration of the achievements when you did achieve achieve it. Yes, it's it's so important to celebrate. I want to ask you a few questions about what they do in Canada and the educational system. Do they do they bring it to the elementary schools already? Do they talk about it there? Yes, they do. Yes. So now all schools um, will have mental health weeks. They'll have mental health awareness. They educate kids on signs and symptoms. They have, you know, certain programs within each school to really help them if they are struggling. It's uh, been quite amazing what the Canadian school system wow, does. Wow, that's really incredible. Do they see that the mental health community is suffering less, like the suicide in Canada is less than in... Yeah, places? definitely. I mean, over the past years, it, it has gone down. Just more people have been uh, sharing their stories. More people have been getting help because of it. Mm-hmm. So it's been coming down quite a bit. That's, we have to bring that to America and other countries. We really have to do that. We have to learn from Canada how to do that. What is your biggest vision for your company now? What do you want it, what do you want it to be in five, 10 years? I just want to see it where it's something that's in multiple countries around the world Mm -hmm. that we're making a, a huge impact on the community there and really getting the conversation going or building on the conversation that already may be there and making sure that all the money donated is is going to the right places um, mm-hmm. to really make a great impact on the community. Who do you donate to? So we used to donate to a variety of organizations. And now what we're doing is we're using the money to build affordable housing with it. We've seen that there's, um, you know, there's so many aspects of, of mental health that it's, I feel like it's impossible to change all aspects. Right. So I wanted to just focus on one and that mm-hmm. was housing for people impacted by mental health or addiction. Mm. So we're starting it here in Toronto where we're going to be building a variety of condo units and buildings that go towards people impacted by mental health and addiction. And we're piloting it here in Toronto. And then mm. as it grows, we'd be taking it to different cities around North America. That's phenomenal. So how does one get housing? Uh, how do they get approved? Is there a system in place? Yeah, so there's systems in place and you know, here in Canada, we have uh, CAMH, uh, it's Canadian Addiction Mental Health Services. Um, there's about a waiting list of, I think, 20,000 people on it right now. And that's what we're trying to, to tackle right now. We're starting here in Toronto. And if it, if it goes well here, we would do Montreal, Vancouver, and really expand it across the country and then bring it into the U.S. and all the different markets that we're in. You have so much going on. It's Def- unbelievable. How many yeah. hours do you sleep a night? Probably about six or seven. Are you I'm very... Sure. Are you very good with exercise? Like, are you committed that you know that it's part of recovery, constant yeah, recovery? Exactly. It's something that I, I mean, I'm always working on and, it's, <laughs> you know, a day doesn't go by that I'm not trying to do something to further improve my life and how I'm feeling. 
Right. That that is remarkable. Really remarkable. I I feel like we have the same goal of bringing awareness to our business. My merchant processing is also gives proceeds to mental health awareness. My my dream is to build a recovery home, mm-hmm. and that whoever comes through it will be um, working in it afterwards. It's going to be like you have to pay it forward. Pay it forward if, yeah, yeah, very much into a pay it forward because I feel like. My recovery, the pay it forward was the biggest part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. The fact that I could give back to what I gained because I received for so many years that finally I could give back. It makes me feel so good. So it's very similar in the merchant processing world. As you said, I was so fascinated when you said it seems like a charity, the t-shirt, the first t-shirt, because a lot of people say, I don't want to give to a charity. I'm like, no, you, you do the merchant processing regularly. Just we give the proceeds. They don't want to, they, they want to make a big difference between business and charity and that mm-hmm. fine line on how to not get that messed up in translation, which yeah. is, I found that was interesting that you had the yeah, same thing with the t-shirt. Do. Yeah, with yeah. the t-shirt. Yeah. So how do you get the message out there properly is also a very big um, mindset and how to adapt to it. I, I learned a lot from Bring Change to Mind. Do you know the, the organization mm-hmm. Bring Change yeah. to Mind? And they're also into t-shirts. You know, they mm-hmm. also do the black and white t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also trying to come to schools in America and programs, which is really remarkable. Um, I know it's the beginning of the day and you need to go. I just want to ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. What does hope mean to you? Hope to me is is a, a second chance. I feel it's it's something that uh, that when I use the word hope, it's it's how I envision improving my day or improving my life or the the situation around me, and really mm-hmm. just allowing myself and giving myself permission to to have a second chance at something. I guess it goes with your slogan: "It's okay to not be okay." Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If today is not okay, tomorrow could be okay. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. Maybe we'll switch it around. So you said you spoke in many, many places. Do you mm-hmm. still travel for speaking if somebody wants to hear your story? Yeah. Yeah. It's something I'm really trying to do more and more of. And mm-hmm. you know, as, as the clothing is, is taken care of with our team, I'm trying to just now really go on the road and share my story and really just continue to get that conversation going. So where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and either do business mm-hmm. with you or collab with you or hear, have yeah. you as a speaker? Yeah, if they head to shinethelighton.com, there's a contact page and it has everything there, whether they want to wholesale our clothing, send us a message, send us their story, request for me to come public speak, like everything is is through there and uh, we're very easy and accessible to get to. So it's good. Thank you so much for joining me here. It was really interesting, really inspiring. How old are you again today? What did you say? I just turned 26. So young, so young and so, so far in life, really is so inspiring, <laughs> really, really inspiring. And I hope the youth out there looks at you as an example of what it is like to overcome, to not be ashamed, to overcome the stigma, to reach out, to, to live beyond the, the struggles and the pain and to create something. Because even when we struggle, we can give, even when we struggle. So thank you everybody for listening. You can reach out to shine your light on. Yeah, shine the light on. Oh, shine the light mm-hmm. And you can reach us on our Facebook community, Hope to Recharge, and we can hear more of your inspirational stories and how you decided to change the struggle and make a big impact in your life. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.